This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, everybody. Tonight's show is called Vote One for Climate. But before we start, I'd like to dedicate this show to my late friend, Anna Stevenson. You'll see why at the very end. Our guest tonight is Larissa Waters, Senator Larissa Waters. Now, lots of climate groups are putting out how to vote cards, scorecards, and you can check them out at 350.org, Nature Conservation, Australian Conservation Foundation, and lots of others before you go to vote on July the 2nd. But my main theme is why climate change is not the front-running issue for this 2016 election, even though people in the community are door-knocking, holding forms, even doing stunts. So Larissa has called uh, us from Queensland and I hope her campaign is going well. Um, She'll be followed by the ALP candidate for Wentworth, Evan Hughes, and there'll be a guest appearance from the Prime Minister who holds the seat of Wentworth. And then we'll hear from Jim Casey, who is fighting Progressive Labor's Albanese in the seat of Graindler. So welcome, Larissa. Nice to be with you. Thank you very much. Do you agree that climate change is way down the priority list in this election? Look, I certainly agree it's down the priority list of the two bigger parties, which I think is a real shame and a real misreading of community sentiment. Because when I'm out door knocking and campaigning in Queensland and around the country, people are raising clean energy as something that they're really excited about. And they get that we need to act on climate change because they've seen news about the impacts on the reef. Um, they've been experiencing the wild, unseasonal storms. Um, many of them have been affected by the changes in temperature, by bushfires or know someone who has. And they understand that this is not normal and that this is a climate beginning to change already and that the rest of the world is starting to make that transformation to cleaner energy sources and Australia actually should be doing a lot more in that regard. So it's comforting to me that people in the community seem to get it, but what's extremely disappointing is that both of the big parties aren't really tackling this issue. And you've got to wonder whether it's the donations that the coal industry makes to both of the big parties that um, buys their support of that fossil fuel, which, of course, is totally last century and needs to be replaced as quickly as possible with clean renewables. I actually think it might be the media because I was at a, a meeting, a public meeting at Box Hill Town Hall and Josh Frydenberg and Mark Butler were there putting their positions. But towards the end, there was a real softening. They both said, yes, we know this is far too serious for us to disagree on. And 
we are here to serve the public. And I've never heard mm. politicians say that. Janet Rice was there, of course, putting the Greens position mm. way above anything that they were offering. Mm. But still, they softened towards each other and uh, to that public. I think it was very agreeable. But the media never report that. There was no report on that particular meeting in the paper. Well, look, let's hope that they take that improving stance back to their own parties and party rooms. Yeah. Um, certainly, it's been exciting to watch, well, to, to announce many of our Greens policies, which, as you say, are, are really strong and, of course, backed by the science. And we're really pleased to be giving a voice to community members and scientists who understand that we've got to act on global warming or we, well, we simply have to. There's, there's no war. Mm. Um and so that's good that you've got individual members of both of the big parties who are starting to understand it. But, you know, they've got to actually get enough people in their party to change their policies. And, I mean, the, the Liberal government is the best case um, of that to of that point because mm. we had all hoped, I think, that when uh, Malcolm Turnbull took over that Tony Abbott's climate policies would go by the wayside. Mm. And what an absolute heartbreak that nothing has changed in terms of climate policy. And I mean, many other policies that haven't changed either, despite the Prime Minister's personal views. And I think Australia's really, really quite annoyed at that because they were all hoping for a change and they've gotten more of the same. The policies that are out of step with the science that simply spend 21 billions of dollars on propping up coal coal seam gas, which is doing huge damage to our farmland and a, a huge threat to our groundwater, and yet, you know, getting these free free subsidies in the form of cheaper fuels, <coughs> accelerated depreciation, all of those different tax perks, mm. but, um, they're not getting, um, clean energy's not getting that kind of support. In fact, clean energy's getting a $1 billion cut from ARENA, which is the renewable energy agency that's been so instrumental in supporting the development of cutting-edge renewables. And yet both big parties are wanting to take away the grant function of that body and take away the $1 billion that it mm. used to use to support clean energy startups and innovation and new technology. So it's a bit rich, really, to hear talk about innovation when taking money away from it. Yeah. Well, look, after the Paris Climate Agreement, which I know you attended, both the Prime Minister and Environment Minister Hunt were trumpeting their success. And I think this is coming back to the media. I mean, the polls are saying 50-50 now, but I think many people must have gone back to sleep and they must think mm -hmm. that after Paris, the climate problem had been solved. Do you think mm -hmm. this? the media is putting this story out, that it's all okay? Look I think that's indeed the, the concern that we had in the lead-up to Paris. There was obviously great momentum heading into that, those international talks. I think the outcome was a positive one. It's widely accepted that it's not strong enough, but it does lay a pathway for countries to review their emissions reduction targets um, every five years. And I'm hopeful that with that growing momentum towards clean energy, that we'll see that that pathway escalate and those targets increased. So, but I think you're right, Vivian, about the result of, of that positive outcome. Perhaps people think that the problems are not real anymore. Or perhaps the media doesn't understand that it's, that it's still real and just because the conference is over doesn't mean the issue's gone away. So I think you're right that the mainstream media has a, a very influential and large role to play in shaping pe people's perceptions. Mm. And they do themselves a disservice when they don't emphasise climate and the impact of, of climate policy, the effects on the reef. Um, you know, the effects of extreme weather events, the cost to infrastructure, you know, that there's many different facets of, of impact mm. of global warming and the opportunities. 
Well, I met a lot of climate activists and climate action groups, and I think a lot of them are very sickened by the fossil fuel donations that mm. are taming these two big parties. Mm. And we saw how Labor's mining tax was defeated, and mm. um, I saw you in Parliament on that time when they sort of sat through the night, or you all sat mm. through the, the Parliament's entry sitting, went through the night, and you read out a great list of the donations and the yeah. corruption that that involves. Yeah. And meanwhile, there's a 350.org kind of campaign, and you signed on to that pledge to not accept donations. Well, I don't suppose mm. fossil fuels are offering you many donations, but also not to subsidise this dying industry. And yet mm. Anthony Albanese, Mark Butler, most of the Liberals have refused to break the golden handcuffs mm. that bind them to coal and mm. gas. And I want to know how we, the community, how we can force the issue before the election. Well, look, that's really the key issue, Vivian, and what's been encouraging to me is the widespread awareness in the public of the power of those donations. People seem to intuitively get that it's not right or fair that just because you make a large donation to a political party that you then get special access and you get effectively to write your own rules. People feel very disenfranchised by that and they're right to feel that way. And it's something that crops up an awful lot whenever we're out on the street. And interestingly, it's an issue that crosses political uh, parties and people from all, all spectrums, no matter who they normally vote for, are all saying when we raise this issue, oh, yeah, I think we should clean up our democracy. Those those donations are, you know, are holding our decision-makers hostage. And it's true, they are. And I'm really encouraged by the number of people that understand that and are putting the pressure on for donation reform. It's something that we're Greens have been calling for for many, many years, and we've had multiple bills in the federal parliament to say, let's just ban donations from the fossil fuel sector. And while we're at it, let's end them from um, alcohol, tobacco, the property industry, and gambling as well. Those pernicious industries that um, are, you know, exerting so much influence over our political decision-making processes and unfairly. So I'm comforted, Vivian, and I would encourage your listeners to um, email their uh, both their local MP and also their Senate candidates. And why don't you send it to the Prime Minister and the opposition leader as well? And just let them know that this is an issue that people's vote will change because of. That's the most powerful thing that a voter can say in the lead-up to an election can say, I used to vote for your party, but actually, because of this issue, I'm not going to anymore. I want you to come out with an announcement that said you'll support reform and end those dirty donations. Mm. So people have got a real opportunity in the next few weeks to, to send that message. And if the message is loud and clear enough and enough people do that, then the old parties will feel that pressure and it'll be their call to they change their policy or do they risk losing votes? Mm. Well, meanwhile, the Great Barrier Reef is just dying and I think Hunt and Turnbull are trying to trick the public by throwing $1 billion at it. Mm. How do you think the voters will react? Will they be fooled? Look, I hope not, because people are very passionate about the reef. And again, it's one of those things that perhaps because I'm in Queensland, people um, have a great awareness of and they've watched with horror of the largest bleaching event in the reef's history roll out this year and again and held their breath to see how much of that coral would survive that bleaching and been devastated when a good quarter of it has died permanently and will take many, many years to recover, assuming there's no further events, which we all know under a changed climate situation, there will be further temperature warmings and acidification and cyclones and, and so forth. So people know the reef's in real peril. Um, I think it's positive that the other parties have felt the pressure of community 
sentiment and have come out with some announcements. But of course, when you look at the detail, how dare the government take a billion dollars out of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to give it to the reef, Mm. the reef deserves its own money Mm. and it shouldn't come at the expense of clean energy. And when the biggest threat to the reef is from climate change, why on earth would you be taking money out of clean energy, which is part of the solution, rather than finding new money that the reef deserves to tackle water quality, which is, of course, the second biggest threat. Mm. So it's it's really, the government's shown their true colours here in constantly raiding the Clean Energy Finance Corporation to make somewhat tenuously related announcements, treating it like a piggy bank. First, they wanted to abolish it, and in the Senate, we were able to stop that. Um, now they're raiding it, and then today they've made an announcement about funding for uh, sustainable cities, which is another change of tack because the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is already doing that sort of work mm. and it's existing money. So first they try to abolish it and then they raid it and then they try to disguise um, an existing function, and existing money as something new. So it's a pretty deplorable treatment of the clean energy industry by the government in particular. And in terms of Labor's announcement on water quality, um, at least they didn't raid the Clean Energy Fund to, to make their promises, but nowhere near enough in terms of what's needed and what the scientists are telling us water quality needs to um, have spent on it to make some serious inroads. So mm. it's a bit too little, too late is a short version. But that's what I mean. They're taking the population for fools by talking about water quality instead of global warming. It's the warming yeah. water that's killing the, the coral. Some of the areas right up there in the north don't even have any agricultural mm. runoff or anything like that. Anyway, I, I just I'm, I'm onto yeah. this media thing about why is it low priority or when they do put a priority on it, they make fools of us and try and ob- yeah. obscure things and confuse us and then Q&A gets onto it and starts mincing it up again and, and really mm. people I think think, oh, I don't know what is, what's happening. But meanwhile Look, a lot of people speak to me about our overseas obligations, you know, that there is a kind of overseas connection to our fossil fuel burning up. Our emissions have gone up 3% since the Abbott government came in. And the media reported recently on India enduring intolerable days of 51 degrees centigrade Mm. and the Cape grim scientists down in mm. Tasmania were said that we've passed 400 parts per million of mm-hmm. CO2 in the atmosphere. But I think this is sort of unfocused weather porn. You know, as far as the media go, they're just telling us these facts but not telling us what to do about it. And mm. I think the narrative has to be much bigger and more responsible and it needs to take responsibility for our regional neighbours, the, the flow-on effect to them. What do you think about that? I couldn't agree more, Vivian. And, I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. And I thank goodness for BZE Radio, who can join those obvious dots and point out that all of the suffering and the hardship that's been caused by these extreme weather events, whether that's onshore here in Australia or whether that's out that our regional neighbours are facing, that that is caused by the burning of fossil fuels, which um, Australians ourselves are, are worsening through our own intensive energy use, because, of course, we're the largest per capita polluter on the entire planet, but also that we are furthering that with our coal exports. And that actually, um, you, you'll never hear this in the media either, places like India and China are rapidly transitioning away from fossil fuels and embracing solar and other renewables. And again, you don't hear about that because it doesn't fit the meme of Australia being dependent on coal. Now, 
our economy. Um, Coal's played a large role in our economy in previous years, never as much as the industry itself made out. But that role is dwindling and the coal price globally has completely tanked and commentators are now describing that as a structural decline. They're saying it's not going to come back because the world is making that transition to clean energy. And I don't know what it's going to take for the media and the big parties to get that message because it seems plain as day to us and to many other Australians. And here in Australia, where we've got some of the best sunshine in the world, some huge potential for tidal and wave power, um, some pretty good wind deposits, depending on where you are in the country, and potential for geothermal, we should be really um, focusing our energies literally on clean energy because that's where the jobs of the future come from. Mm. Um, That's where our economic profitability will come from. And, of course, that's what our reef and our planet needs. Well, that brings me to my last question. Uh, I'd like you to... um put on your deputy leader of the Greens hat now as the deputy leader I'd like you to answer this um, comment from Matthias Cormann the finance minister he said Labour and the Greens are now on an anti-business anti-jobs and anti-growth ticket just in terms of and then that's his quote just in terms of climate action is this a fair thing to say that the Greens are anti-business and anti-jobs and maybe you do want growth of something different Exactly. I think it's ridiculous for for the government to be saying that they support jobs and growth and the Greens don't when clean energy is the best prescription for jobs and growth that you could possibly think of. And we are right behind clean energy businesses. We want to see the renewable energy sector grow and boom and create those jobs and create those profits um, and boost our economy. So uh, it surprises me that the government, for all of its slogans and mantras, can't see that the best way to achieve uh, economic stability and job growth is renewables because the rest of the world can see that. Mm. Um, One thing I will say about business is we don't support the $50 billion of corporate tax cuts that this government is proposing and we think it's an outrageous waste of money when they're cutting funding for domestic violence Mm. shelters, where they're cutting funding out of schools, where they can't find new money for the reef and when they're taking a billion dollars out of the Renewable Energy Agency. It's absolutely profligate to be then giving handouts to the very large corporates and trying to pretend that that will trickle down. Well, I mean, that's economics 30 or 40 years out of date, even if it ever ever held water. And so we're certainly opposed to those cuts, but we think that renewables are a really good way to um, safeguard our economy and create the jobs of the future and help the planet. (laughs) Thank you very much. So that was Senator Larissa Waters, who's a candidate in the current election, Senator from Queensland. Thank you, Larissa. Thanks, Vivian. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. You're listening to 3CR Radio. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now.
And now we're going to hear from Malcolm Turnbull. He gave this speech in 2010 at Sydney Town Hall. It was a packed town hall and it was the launch of the Beyond Zero Emissions Zero Carbon Australia report. This is the old Malcolm Turnbull that we all hope will regenerate himself. But listen in now. We'll just pay part of it. Well, well, thank you very much, Quentin. It's, um, it's uh, distinctly... Uh, um, I'm privileged to be categorised as a pariah here tonight. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. Quentin made the point that uh, this issue, this issue of clean energy and climate change has not been at the forefront of this election. And Bob Carr just said to me a moment ago that he didn't, he didn't think there were any media covering this meeting tonight. I don't know whether that's true or not. But it is remarkable that on a cold winter's night, this issue has managed to fill the town hall. And that tells you something. That tells you something about the extent of the concern that Australians have about climate change and the interest in and hunger for information and knowledge about the way we can deal with it and the way we can move as we must move if we are to effectively combat climate change to a situation where all or almost all of our energy comes from zero or very near zero emission sources. Now, our response to climate change must be guided by science. The science tells us that we have already exceeded the safe upper limit for atmospheric carbon dioxide. We are, as humans, conducting a massive science experiment with this planet. It's the only planet we've got. We are dealing, in scientific terms, with enormous uncertainty. There is a tendency for people to point to the forecasts uh, for the future, sea, level, sea levels, temperatures, other impacts of climate change and say, oh, well, you know, they've, they've over-egged the pudding a little bit. It's probably going to be uh, less dramatic than that. But we are dealing with uncertainty, and it may well be, and indeed there is considerable evidence that it may well be, that many of these forecasts that we've become so used to, in fact, are on the conservative side. We are, be, we to, we are told that 2010 will be the warmest year on record since records began in the late 1800s. We know that the consequences of unchecked global warming would be catastrophic. We know that extreme weather events are occurring with greater and greater frequency. And while it is never possible to point to one drought or one storm or one flood and say that particular incident is caused by global warming, we know that these trends are entirely consistent with the climate change forecasts, with the climate models that the scientists are relying on. Just in the last month, month, floods and landslides have killed thousands in Kashmir, Poland, Pakistan, Korea and China. Russia has lost at least 30% of its grain crop due to the worst fires in that country's history. 
Now, sometimes the task of responding to the challenge of climate change may seem too great, too daunting. It is a profound moral challenge because it is a cross-generational challenge. We are asking our own generation to make decisions, to make sacrifices, to make expenditures today so as to safeguard our children, their children and the generations that come after them. It truly requires us to think as a species, not just to think as individuals. We are not, as Edmund Burke reminded us so many years ago, like flies of the summer that just come and go without any knowledge of what went before and what will come after. We as a human species have a deep and abiding obligation to this planet and to the generations that will come after us. And in order... Now, in order to do that, in order to discharge that obligation, we must make a dramatic reduction in the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Now, you can look at the targets, a 50%, the common sort of rubric, rule of thumb, is to cut emissions by 2050 to a level equal to 50% or even lower uh, than they were in 1990 or, or 2000. I promise you, you cannot achieve that cut, you cannot achieve it, without getting to a point by mid-century where all or almost all of our stationary energy, that is to say energy from power stations and big factories and so forth, comes from zero emission sources. You sit, the, the mathematics simply will not get you there. The arithmetic, not, not, not as complex as mathematics, the arithmetic will not get you there unless you can do it. And so technology is of absolutely vital importance. Now, I want to congratulate Matthew and all the authors and collaborators on this report. This is a fantastic piece of work. Many people will look at it and they'll say, it's too good to be true. And we all know that often when things are too good to be true, they probably are. But let me say, let me give you one piece of data, one fact, one insight, which should give you encouragement as you read this report. You'll see that the key technology that this project relies upon is concentrated solar thermal power. As you know, the great challenge with uh, renewable sources of energy, solar and wind in particular, is that they are intermittent. So what do we do when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing? How do we store that power? There's a very detailed discussion that the authors will go through with you tonight, and I won't even begin to uh, canvas it. But there is the ability with concentrated solar thermal power stations to use the sun's energy to superheat a substance, in this case molten salt, that will hold its heat for long enough to be able to continue to generate steam and hence energy after the sun has stopped shining or you know, after, during day after day of rain. So th there is a real opportunity there with that technology to generate baseload power from solar energy, something of a holy grail. 
Now, there are some small plants in operation that are doing just that now, and there are a number of much larger plants that are about to be commissioned. And you, but you might still say, not unreasonably, look, this has not really been proven at a big industrial scale. And you'd probably, probably be right. That was Malcolm Turnbull at Sydney Town Hall. And now we've got the candidate in Wentworth who is going up against Malcolm Turnbull. His name is Evan Hughes. He's the ALP candidate and he has a background as an art dealer and financier. And I heard him give an impassioned speech about climate change at Paddington Town Hall. The empty seat on the stage was labelled Malcolm Turnbull, who is the sitting member for Wentworth. So welcome to the show, Evan. Are you there? Thank you very much. <laughs> and even, Evan, can you please tell us what made you choose the Labor Party? Look, it's a funny old question. I've been around the Labor Party for a long time. My uh, parents were old Whitlamites and uh, we hail from Queensland originally. My old man used to run around Labor politics with people like uh, Wayne Goss and Peter Beattie back in the 70s before uh, he sort of got more involved in his art gallery. And of course, my dad's famous gallery, uh, Ray Hughes Gallery, has been around since 1969. We closed it last year. But um, uh, short answer is I've been around the party for a long time. Well, you said also in something I read about you that you actually admired Malcolm Turnbull because of his Republican stance. But is there something in the Labor Labor Party, you know, that differentiates you from Malcolm Turnbull that makes you fight on different fronts? Because obviously he's not going to fight for climate change right now. It's very funny, you know, um, the apocryphal story goes, and I think many, many sources have said it, the apocryphal story goes that uh, soon after the Republican movement, Malcolm turned to Graham Richardson and said, uh, Richo, can you find me a safe Labor seat? Uh, at which point Richo said, is said to have said, uh, Malcolm, why don't you join the party and go to 10 years of branch meetings? Um, we've always joked uh, on both sides of politics that uh, Malcolm seems to have chosen the wrong party. But, you know, that being said, he was about my age when he first ran, which is only 30, uh, when he first ran for pre-selection in Wentworth. So he has been a blue-blood Liberal all along. Uh, that being said, yeah, I was deeply, um, deeply admired Malcolm Turnbull's uh, run uh, against, uh, effectively against the forces of conservatism back in the Republican days. Back when, when that Republican referendum failed, he gave that very famous sort of speech that Howard broke the nation's heart. Now, when we hear things like Malcolm Turnbull saying he would not lead a party that wasn't as serious about climate change as he was, uh, and then we see the Turnbull now, we can't help but feel somewhat disillusioned and disappointed. Um, I would say, in my personal opinion, that I certainly hope that he hasn't uh, lost all interest in climate change. Certainly the same sentiments from the speech we just heard from you there from uh, 2010. Uh, I'd like to think he hasn't given it up completely, but um, we certainly haven't heard a lot about it this election campaign from the Liberal Party. Okay, look, some people say the Labor Party is moving left in favour of more public spending, putting fairness ahead of the budget repair. And Turnbull says that the Labor is an, has an anti-business agenda. Like, what message are you giving to wind farm projects and big solar plants that are just champing at the bit to get into the Australian market? 
This is one of the greatest lost opportunities of uh, Australia's 21st century economy, really. Back in 2007, we were on the precipice of becoming a great renewables nation. Uh, Kevin Rudd uh, came into power and there was great promise. The CPRS, well... It didn't quite get there, and it didn't quite get there for a number of reasons. But there is little doubt in my mind that had Rudd gone to a double dissolution election back then, pushed the CPRS through, we would be in a very different post-carbon trading world. We might never have had the misery years of Abbott. In fact, we may never have seen much of Abbott at all other than a lost double dissolution election. I think it's the greatest missed opportunity. And we find ourselves here in 2006 and we still haven't got much of a renewables industry to write home about. 2%. All you have to... It's 2% of penetration in the Australian market and those companies are really wanting to get going. Think about it in these terms. In 2014, clean energy investment grew in China by 32%. The US and the UK, it was about 8%. Japan, I think, was 12%. We, at the same time, dropped by 35% in Australia. These are not messages that we want to be sending industry. These are not messages that we want to be sending the finance sector that is, as you say, champing at the bit. You know, the the superannuation funds of this nation controlling uh, hundreds of billions of dollars in finance money, um, they now have ESG uh, officers and ESG researchers, you know, environmental, social and governance um, impact uh, investment researchers on each of their uh, investment committees. They are very serious about sustainability when it comes to the corporations that they invest in. And in terms of the uh, infrastructure that's going to be spent, sorry, the infrastructure that's going to be built and the infrastructure finance that's going to have to be spent, we just haven't got any clear projects that we can actually work on in the finance sector. Mm. Well, look, let's talk about fossil fuel subsidies. It always comes up because I think Labor's very good on renewable energy, at least much better than the coalition, but fossil fuel subsidies, no. And 350.org have had recently a big campaign in Sydney and around Australia, and I went down to their demonstration outside Anthony Albanese's office where they had a puppet of him sitting on the fence. You know, on one side people were giving him donations from the fossil fuel companies. On the other side, he was giving subsidies to them. And I wondered, you know, how much this, how true this is. They then climbed on Tony Abbott's roof with a giant toilet plunger, you know, claim, claiming that he sure. and the Tea sure. Party part of the coalition are blocking climate action. So why can't the Labor Party at least distance themselves from this dying coal industry? All right, look, when you think of fossil fuel Industries, and you close your eyes and you, you sort of, your mind's eye gets that picture. I guarantee you, everyone thinks of sort of boardrooms with sort of men clad in suits, you know, the BP boardroom, the Rio Tinto boardroom. That's the sort of uh, imagery that you conjure up. When I think of it, I think of driving through a town like Cessnock and looking at all those weatherboard houses. And I think of all of those families that rely on jobs. And those jobs do exist in the Hunter region. They do exist in the Latrobe Valley. Now, what I am certainly happy to accept 
is your comment that it is a dying industry. I was booed off stage. You mentioned that um, that uh, forum I went to and was happy to speak at. You know, renewable energy and renewable energy investment is certainly one of my passions. But I was booed off that stage by someone um, who I presume was protesting uh, the Adani coal mine. But they have this. People have this concept in their mind that if you stand for the Labor Party every day, you wake up, you want to open another coal mine. Um, that may well have been the case some years ago and uh, everyone's coal mines back then in the Labor Party were sort of different things. But in my mind, I really think about jobs first and foremost um, because... We are an economy on the precipice of great change. I know I said precipice before in a different respect, but we, we certainly have some major economic challenges. I'm very, very surprised that during this election we haven't heard very much about those economic challenges. We hear a lot about the sort of glass-half-full mentality of we are an economy in transition. What people very rarely understand is that what they're trying to say is we're an economy in transition towards a services sector economy. That's an ever-shrinking pool of capital. Now, my problem is that we have less and less and less manufacturing in this nation. And one of the industries that we do still hold is, in fact, a resources industry. So we can't turn our backs on that. That being said, that resources industry and the members of the trade unions within that industry are all very much aware that that industry, as you rightly say, is dying. Now... What we're being asked to do sometimes by those people that boo us off the stage is murder it, not allow for a just transition to the next industry. We want to build an renewables industry, and the CFMEU and other unions came on board at our last national conference in Melbourne last July, and I was there, and they came on board because they want their kids to have jobs. They want their kids to have jobs on wind farms. They want their kids to have jobs at solar farms. Okay. So... I understand absolutely everyone's concern with the coal industry. I would simply state to you, Origin Energy has come out recently and said they don't envisage another coal plant being uh, built in the future of their corporation. Those sorts of corporate decisions will happen more and more and more. The job of the Labor Party is to make sure that Australian workers constantly have access to some form of industry, clean Hopefully, we're getting there. Clean industry is where they're headed. But we must have access to jobs and we must have access to that sort of industry to keep the economy ticking over. Mm. Well, you said you're 30, so that's young. I imagine you have a young family. Um, The future is yours. But does climate action mean more to you than just tweaking the system that we've got and exchanging a fossil fueled economy for a transition to renewable economy like you know business as usual we've only got one minute Evan I'm sorry to rush you but could you just say something about the system because a lot of people are just protesting against the system in general because it seems to be not delivering the future we want sure I think we need to start I know I've got a minute Perception, perception more than system. Part of the greatest problem is we're still having this debate right now because half the country isn't convinced that climate change is occurring and isn't convinced that it's changing our planet. We in the Labor Party, and I know my friends at the Greens 100%, do accept the science and are acting. It is not simply about retweaking the system. It's about getting an entire generation to understand that climate science is real, that it's acting to the detriment of uh, our economy, to the detriment of our society. And we, you're absolutely right. I want a planet and I want an Australia for my little boys to grow up in. 
Thank you very much. I'm sorry to have rushed you, Evan, but we'll come back to you another time. So that was Evan Hughes. Great pleasure. Thank you. He's the ALB candidate for the seat that Malcolm Turnbull holds at the moment, which is called Wentworth. And after the break, we're going to speak to Jim Casey. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Jim Casey has seen global warming close up. He is a firefighter and is now Secretary of the Fire Brigade Employees Union of New South Wales. He's up against progressive left ALP MP Anthony Albanese, who has contributed to this show before on High Speed Rail. Jim, welcome to the show. And how are you conducting your campaign? Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, look, the campaign's being run as, as the Greens run a campaign where we've got a, a, a big uh, and very, very committed volunteer base. We're doing our level best to talk to as many people in the community as possible. Uh, and we're taking that data back in order to tune how we're organising and what we're doing next. So it's actually you know, really quite exciting. Oh, it's my first campaign that I've been involved in this closely. And the uh, descent being an organic thing, a thing that actually builds upon itself, is um, it's quite wonderful, actually. So, yes, we're, we're travelling well, and um, we're all enjoying ourselves. That's great. I think the Greens have a policy of participation, don't they, so people can get involved and eventually understand the policies and contribute to them? Yeah, well, I mean, we are, we are a, a grassroots party, a grassroots organisation. Uh, you know, most Greens party members are activists in some part of their life outside of, outside of their party involvement, yeah. which I think is... About frontline workers in a time of climate change. I mean firefighters, um, SES workers, nurses, doctors, police. They're all going to see much more about how climate change is impacting on us than the average person. Can you tell us what it's like for them? This is obviously something dear to my heart, and it, it had a significant. Uh, this question has had a significant role in, in my political evolution. Uh, most of my adult life, I've been involved in trade union politics or social justice questions. Uh, but it was the Black Saturday fires in 2009, which was really a little bit of a, a, a wake-up call for me. Uh, on the back of watching uh, Victorian firefighters try to deal with firefighters that couldn't be fought, and then reflecting on fires like the Canberra firestorm in 2003, uh, some of the, the fire behaviour I'd seen in the Blue Mountains over that decade, uh, and then reading further afield and, and hearing about mega, they, they call them mega fires, but fires which end up having their, their own, basically their own mini uh, climate associated mm. with them in Spain and California and elsewhere in the world, uh, got me thinking. And from there, it was a fairly easy uh, path to understand the, the impact that climate change was having on weather behaviour. The fire behaviour question is, is, in a sense, the, the sexy one, but it's not simply bushfires. There's you know, storm and tempest activity. There's cyclones and hurricanes, which are not occurring with any more frequency, but occurring with greater severity. Uh, there's droughts occurring where there's never been droughts. There's flooding occurring where there's never been never been water. Um, all of these heat waves, but also cold snaps. All of these extreme weather behaviours are occurring more frequently and more intensely. And uh, people like firefighters, um, ambulance ambulance officers, police, doctors and nurses, these are the people who are on the front line of that. You, we all pay them a wage to actually deal with these crises as they occur. The question for mine was really quite straightforward. If you've got a fire you can't fight, then guaranteeing the safety of those firefighters uh, becomes something which is almost impossible. You will have to withdraw, really. The way you guarantee their safety in the longer term is to actually remove the conditions which created the fire, and that requires action on climate change. 
Okay, how much are workers in those industries really aware of the connection between the um, need to cut down fossil fuels, for example? The major unions in this country uh, who cover fire, the Fire Brigade Employees Union and the United Firefighters Union, have both taken positive positions on the question and, and, and organise around it. Yes. So, yeah, it's, it's a slight minority position, but certainly a growing one. Okay. Well, look, let's now move to these inner-city electorates, which has excited a lot of interest in the newspapers. Um, yours is one of them, but the one in Batman is also of interest where the Labor and Greens candidates are kind of pitched against each other where most people would think, oh, well, you know, we're much more on both their sides. You know, we prefer to see an alliance between them. And I think uh, in your electorate, rusted on Labor voters are kind of angry because you're challenging one of their best people, the progressive side of Labor. That's what they think, Albany, Albanese. But I was amused that the Murdoch papers actually took his side. Huge For Melbourne oh, listeners, yeah. there was a huge front page saying, save our elbow. And there was an article by Albanese quoting your speech. Now, this speech got you into a lot of trouble with people I know, you know, who are in Balmain or in your electorate, and they've said, oh, look, I don't know what he was talking about. And I'll just quote for the Melbourne listeners that speech. I don't know if you regret saying it, but I, I can understand it. But I think they, it was a bit too subtle for the <laughs> Telegraph audience. <laughs> and the quote, well, you were quoted at a Greens conference earlier on saying, I'd prefer to see Tony Abbott returned with a Labour movement that was growing and a climate change movement that was actually starting to disrupt the production of coal. There's, I've left a little bit out in the middle, but why should my friends or people I know abandon Albanese and vote for a party that depends on all this grassroots constant protest and campaigning from the community? Yeah, I don't regret saying that for a moment because it was said in the context of a six-minute speech. Yeah. Uh, if you take that line, immediately after that I said, of course... If we saw those kind of movements, the odds of actually Tony Abbott being re-elected would be nil, and everyone laughed. So, um, you know, there's a sense that the Daily Telegraph, and for your Melbourne listeners, the Daily Telegraph is, is like the Herald Sun, but yep. on nasty steroids. <laughs> um, they were going to find something to throw at us. Uh, that's what they do to Greens candidates. They found uh, one line out of context in a speech I gave a number of years ago, and they're using that as a stick to beat me with uh, one of my predecessors who ran for this seat. They used the question of the BDS. Uh, in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian situation as the thing to crucify her on. Uh, you know, every election they find something else. So that was always going to happen. And the challenge for us is just to make sure we get those conversations happening. So, yes, that has had some impact. But every person who's raised it with me or someone near my campaign team has gone away happy when it's been explained to them. Yeah. And, again, the challenge is just to make sure we have those conversations. Yeah. So I don't resolve from it. The basic proposition I was making there is that it doesn't matter who the politician is, if you don't have an active and engaged community backing them up, uh, there's not much they can do. And I think the most interesting example of that recently has been the Greek situation, where the Syriza government was elected on an anti-austerity platform, uh, you know, with enormous passive support for that, but not active support. And in the absence of having active support in the community to actually really think about an exit from the euro, uh, they were forced ultimately to actually implement the, the cuts that they had said they wouldn't do. Mm. So, um, yeah, my proposition, I think, look, I think it's basically political economy. You know, power doesn't simply reside in Parliament. It also resides in our communities. And if we're not organised there, then it's pointless expecting politicians to do heavy lifting for us. Right. Well, th 
This program is about climate action, and one of the things that we focus on at Beyond Zero Emission is, you know, the literal nitty-gritty of how to get renewable energy up and running a bit more, you know, pervasively than it is now. And the Greens have said they want a new government agency to manage the massive transition in the energy system. And I'd like to know, will this also help people who not only can't afford solar power on their roof, but they can't afford to turn on the heater? Uh, look, it's interesting you say that. Uh, in terms of the way we're approaching the question of renewables, the expectation is that your price point for the electricity you'd be receiving would match the the current projected increase in prices. So it wouldn't be cheaper, but it wouldn't be more expensive. So in a sense, the question you're asking is how do people who are struggling cope at all? Uh, that's a far more fundamental question about distribution of wealth. And I don't know that it's our renewable energy policy you should be looking at there in terms of an answer to be a taxation policy. Um, I certainly do think that the fact that there are people in our community who have to make a choice on occasion between whether it's food or heating is just frankly an abomination. We, we produce so much that, that anyone should have that level of hardship in Australia is just beyond me. Uh, but the answer to that's not tied up in our renewable energy policy. The answer to that's tied up in questions about making sure the top end of town pay their fair share of tax. Okay. Well, look, the last question, Jim, um, for the listeners, I'm talking to Jim Casey, who's a Greens candidate up in Sydney in the electorate of Graindler. Look, I'd like to take it on the bigger picture now. Um, we've got Bernie Sanders over in, in America giving socialism, I think, a human face. And when he talks of hyper-capitalism, I sort of agree with him. I think that's what we're up against here, as these people buy power over the political process, they approve new minds, you know, they, they secure an approval for the new minds, and then they sack climate scientists whose data we need. And I think they're sacrificing our beautiful climate for short-term profit, and yet Anthony Albanese tries to frighten people by calling you a socialist. Do you think it will work? Look, I, I think it's a little bit sad, really. I mean, you know, particularly coming from someone who's the, uh, the, the senior figure of the socialist left of the Labor Party. This is a bad famous, uh, you know, chucking out uh, Billy Bragg LPs for his friends and singing the red flag and so forth. So, look, I think, I think coming from Anthony, the, the socialist smear is, is a little bit sad. Um, and I also think for a lot of people, it's kind of a bit meaningless. Uh, a lot of these terms have, have lost all meaning, I think. Uh, you know, certainly the, the, the 20th century sort of dynamics between socialism and capitalism are, for many, for many voters, many people I'm talking to, this is, this might as well be, you know, ancient Egypt. Um, and for those of us who have lived through parts of it, it's becoming really the distant past. So, look, I don't know. I, I, I suspect that Anthony's, um, Anthony's red baiting is not going to make much of a difference. Um, because I think the really, really pressing question is not so much the, the, the terminology and the battles of the past it's the battles we're facing right now uh, and some of these terms are useful I think to actually start to unpick it but the real bottom line I think is when you start talking about policy and, and what it means so does it make sense that as a firefighter I pay more tax than Google and what does that mean when you take that extrapolate that out more broadly mm. why is it that some of the wealthiest in our society contribute the least what would that mean if we turned that around and as importantly how do you go about doing it I think that starts to raise some of these questions which have been associated with words like socialism in the past. I don't care what you call it. I think just basically returning to a fairer, more de- well, no, not returning, getting to a fairer and more democratic, a genuinely democratic society is something which is a necessity for us, both as, as a society, in terms of actually a society that you, know, you feel proud and happy and safe and secure in, but also because that's the basis on which we can start talking about. 
environment but coexisting with it. Yeah. Uh, it's an existential crisis, really, uh, both of the spirit in terms of the kind of society we build, but also in terms of our flesh, in terms of you know whether we continue to survive as, as a species as we as we know. Yeah, super. Thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate you giving me your time and back to the campaign for you. An absolute pleasure. So that was our Vote One for Climate show. I hope you now will vote wisely, listeners. I'd like to remind you that at the top of the program, I dedicated it to Anna Stevenson, who was my friend. She died and um, her husband has given us a wonderful donation in memory of Anna Stevenson. So I'd really like to tell you listeners who she was. She was a doctor. She had a long illness and I used to go and visit her. And if we were visiting about five o'clock, she'd stop everything and we'd listen to this show. And she gave me such a lot of courage and feedback and told me where I'd gone wrong. And she was just such a, a great friend. And her husband, John, still listens to the show, I think. So thank you to that family for giving us a radio shon, a radiothon donation. But also there's a great list of people. I won't say the amounts, but all of them are very welcome and we've made our target so thank you very much. There's one anonymous donation, then Andy Britt, Rod Campbell, Margaret Clancy, Peter Curzon-Siggers, Anthony Daniele, Heather Sims and Don Stokes, Bernd Fischner, Margaret Fleerman, Angela Gill, Jodie Green, Chris Gross, Elizabeth and Horst, John Stevenson, Sonia Kuzilny, Cheng Lim, Julie Lyford, Peter McCallum, Senator Christine Milne, Loretta O'Brien, Claire O'Rourke, Deborah Robertson, Helen Searle, Greg Siegel, Susan Sharp, Vicky Sharp, Jenny Skews, John Stevenson, oh, he gave two donations, uh, Miwa Tomanaga, Wendy Zamet. Then the last list is Hal Kirkland, Stephen Langford, Jan Shifko and David Watson. So thank you very much. It's really helped us, um, encouraged us really that so many people are supporting our show. Next week's show will be at the Coral Colon Climate Forum at Box Hill Town Hall featuring Rod Quantock, Quantock and some climate MPs. Um, this has been the Vote One for Climate show, and if you can take action before July the 2nd, now is the time politicians are listening to pressure from you. If it's a swinging electorate, you can say you won't vote for them if they keep up subsidies to fossil fuels or persevere with new coal and gas projects, or if they block massive investment in renewable infrastructure, like high-speed rail. Thank you for listening. The team tonight was Jane, Andy, and my name is Vivian Langford, and I'd like you to stay tuned for Albert Park. But just before we go to uh, some music, I'd like you to read, uh, we have one last thing, a coda. This is a comment that was cut off last week just because of technical reasons. We got very excited in the talkback atmosphere and we cut this person off. His name is Bount and he's an old friend of mine. And he wanted his comment, this is what he, his comment about the election and climate change within that. He said, what we need in Australia are politicians who can look beyond the next election, who can leave behind party political positions when it comes to matters of national importance, such as the effects of climate change, and those who have charisma to unite people and the ability to lead them rather than be led by the outcome of polls. I don't think we have them here. There are instead lots of people who say all the right things while they are in opposition and when or if they get into government they tend to forget all the promises they made.
And I was going to say also that I am quite proud of the achievements of Germany because that's where he grew up. When it comes to cleaning up the environment and preparing the country for a sustainable future, I have always been a supporter of the party that is currently in opposition in Germany, but I admire Mrs Merkel's government for what it has done in relation to a sustainable future and a renewable energy source. Apart from the decency and humanity it has shown by accepting hundreds of thousands of refugees recently. As I said above, this shows that sometimes party political considerations must and can be put aside. So thank you, Bount, for your comment. And now you haven't been cut off, you have been fully heard. And thank you again to the wonderful donors who have given us a vote of confidence by sending in donations and supporting the continuation of um, Radio 3CR, which is also under a bit of pressure from government who are going to cut back or planning to cut back $1.4 million a year in subsidy to community radio. That's for all the radio stations, not just this one, 1.4 million for 37 stations. So if you want to get onto the community uh, radio website and support their campaign, please do. So I think we've finished now, Andy, and Save Over Park is coming up. We can have a little bit of music and I'll see you again next week with the Box Hill Town Hall uh, Climate.